Well, beloved, if you have your Bibles, please turn them open to Matthew chapter 25. Our text this morning will come from 25, Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13. And before I read from God's holy and precious word, let's ask for his blessing upon us. Let's pray. Now, Almighty God, in Christ's name, we bow before you to be instructed, encouraged, admonished, rebuked. Lord, whatever each one needs, we pray you would provide that you would do a saving work, a glorious saving work, that you will continue to father over us and teach us as your children. Lord, whatever our needs are, you know better than we do. So we submit ourselves in love to you. Lord, we ask that you would come by your spirit and fill us with knowledge and understanding, wisdom and prudence. We pray, O Lord, that you would take this text of scripture pertaining to the kingdom of heaven and instruct us, Lord, in the duties that belong to us and that you would also empower us to fulfill those duties in Christ's name. So, Father, bless yourself in us and through us and in this preaching of the gospel. Lord, take this word and glorify yourself. May it be pleasing in your sight, Lord, the doctrines, the applications, Lord, the way it's even presented. May it bring you glory and may it edify, Lord, your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the living God. And then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will be not enough for us and you too. So go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. You may be seated. Well, beloved, it's been said that this parable has caused many professing saints to consider the very root of their salvation. And I don't remember the commentator that I gleaned that from, but it does stand to be true concerning this parable among scholars. Thomas Shepard, 
a Puritan, wrote 600 plus pages on this parable. It is said that the best of saints who read his work doubted their own salvation. Now we can in a sanctified way chuckle at such a comment if we know anything about the Puritans. The Puritans agonized over the state of man. They agonized that truth, coupling it with the glory of God, and they spent volumes and pages of of, of trying to bring to bear the truth of God's word. And sometimes we have to admit they went too far. And that was part of the failure of the Puritan movement was making salvation so strenuous and so difficult and so hard that no one felt safe. And that's not my intention this morning. My intention this morning is to extract three truths from the text hopefully to educate you, to encourage you, and to enliven the faith you have in, in, in addressing and dealing with this main point, which is the coming of the bridegroom. And as Jesus ends the, this parable in verse 13, the the emphasis or the caution is right there in verse 13. Be on the alert, for you do not know the, the day nor the hour that our Lord comes. So the purpose of the parable is to create in God's children a vigilance, a diligence that will, will persevere throughout their lives. And maybe in some way, beloved, by God's grace, we can equalize that, that, that heart monitor of our lives. We're high and low, high and low, high and low. Maybe we can take the truth of this word this morning, apply it to our lives, and maybe we can equalize that out a little bit where there is some smaller lows, some some at least highs, but that there's this, 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 this trending upward waiting for our Lord's return that we might then receive the fullness of that reward of our salvation. We want to be encouraged this morning. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to leave here this morning having feasted upon the truths of God's word, having your heart filled with that 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 infallible word that you would take with you today, encouragement, and have a, a greater desire to meet with Christ more and more and more. Now let's address the parable itself. The overarching theme of this parable is addressing the return of Christ. And where God's people are in relationship to his return. Now, there'll be some commentators that might take this text of scripture and apply it to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
Some may apply it to the end of our lives. That is, we all have a day appointed in which we will take our last breath and enter into the presence of God if we are his child. And it may be that final return when Jesus comes back and, well, all things as we know it in this life, the temporal world ends at that point and eternity begins. Well, I don't think it matters particularly which one because what we're going to teach from the parable would apply to all three. Whether the saints that Jesus was preaching to, teaching and instructing would have to wait upon the destruction of Jerusalem when he told them, listen, I am coming quickly and judgment is with me. Be on the alert. Make sure you recognize when you see the abomination of desolation, know, know that this destruction that I'm speaking of has come upon you. And then he gives them some instructions of preparation. Here's what you need to do when that happens. Don't go down into the house to get your cloak. He even tells them how to pray. Pray that your, uh, your escape won't be in the winter time. Particularly those who are nursing infants. Why? It will be very difficult to make that escape in that situation. And brothers and sisters, it may very well be the application that we don't know what day and hour our Lord will call us home, just like the man that owned those barns and he tore them down and he built new ones and bigger ones. And, and he was so consumed with his possessions and wealth that he forgot about his own soul. And that's what was told to him on that evening that his soul was required of him. That he had, he had forsaken the, the, the greater part of what he possessed. And how foolish that was of him. And we don't want to be that person either. So whether it's when we close our eyes and take our last breath or whether or not we are alive when Jesus comes back, beloved, these truths that I'm going to teach you this morning from our text will remain solid and fixed and we should apply ourselves to them. Now this parable is designed to probe each one of us as as it relates to this return of Christ and all of the glory that he has deserved, that our hearts would be probed, if you will, searched out, that we would look for these truths, this reality that Jesus is speaking of here, that, that we would say all true Christians must possess so these are essential truths. These are, these are not truths that you can take and leave at your own discretion. These are things that we need to look for in ourselves as we extract them from the word. We need to make sure, beloved, that we examine ourselves not by one another, but by the word of God. That's the infallible, if you will, that, that 
word, that infallible word is the word that comes to judge us. It's not that we can't compare ourselves or it's it's not that we shouldn't see one another as examples as far as that goes. But when we are dealing with eternal matters such as our hearts and the salvation that we've been promised and are we true Christians, we must go to the word of God. Now, what is it about this parable that is, since Jesus taught it and it was written as scripture, what is it about this parable that has caused many of God's saints to doubt their condition? Well, when you look at the text itself, there are a lot of commonalities between the two groups that Jesus sets forth in the parable. Those 10 virgins, the five that were prudent or wise and the five that are foolish, they share a lot of commonality. You can look in here. They're all considered to be these bridesmaids. They all are called to this festive meeting of the bridegroom and escorting the bridegroom into the marriage chamber. It's been considered, and I think rightly so, and it'll be my first point when we come to it, that these 10 virgins or bridesmaids represent the visible church. They represent the visible church. They they represent that church throughout history that's always been a mixed church. From the time of its inception, the church has been mixed with true and false believers. But what Jesus does, I think, wisely and brilliantly from the text is where he sets forth these 10 virgins, where he, where he demonstrate that the church body can be filled with people that are so similar in appearance, profession, and even activity. The one thing that the text highlights that the prudent and wise virgins possess that the foolish ones do not is that personal yearning and longing and desire for the Savior. That each true Christian possesses that this is my beloved. I am his and he is mine. Where do I get that? Well, I get it from the, the illustration that Christ uses. Remember, a parable is the teaching that takes a very common practice, something the people that are listening to the parable are very familiar with, and he uses it to teach a spiritual principle, a spiritual rule. And he uses the marriage feast. He uses the beauty of a marriage, the love that 
a bride has for the bridegroom and the bridegroom has for the bride. Now, brothers and sisters, why did Jesus use the marriage feast? I, I think it's this. There is never a greater yearning and longing that a bride has for her bridegroom than at that moment. It's never stronger. It's at its height. You think about it. There is never a more festive heart-filling, passionate, satisfying moment than that moment when the bridegroom comes to the bride and they are given to one another. We know that throughout life there can be all kinds of challenges to a marriage. We say things years later that we would never say to one another at that moment that we can't wait to be with one another to possess one another to to look into one another's eyes and to have that that moment of sharing the rest of our lives together and Jesus uses that they understood that you and I understand this That's why we even love going to weddings because we love witnessing that moment when the father places the hand of the bride in the hand of the bridegroom and they look at each other and they can't think of anything else. They can only see each other and they have to go through all of the formalities but they're just wanting to be with one another. And Jesus uses that to describe the relationship between him and his church. That there is this, what is it that separates this special grace, this this possession of this oil that the true Christians have, but even the foolish virgins, bridesmaids, possess oil. Our brother mentioned it in the prayer this morning. And in in God's providence, as I was preparing to speak on it, he prays about what? Common grace. That the spirit of God not only comes and fills the church with this hope and this strength of faith and this perseverance to maintain their profession of faith throughout their lives, but he also blesses the natural world that we live in. Matthew chapter five says, does not our Lord cause it to rain upon the crops of the wicked and the righteous? Is he not blessing the work of their hands? Not because they deserve it, but because he's gracious, he's good, and he knows that he is orchestrating his will throughout all of the earth. Now we also know that all of it is for the benefit of his church. But 
But beloved, the picture this morning is that of the marriage feast and that desire, that, that passionate longing that one has for the other, we should possess for our Savior. Listen, that's the difference. It's, it's this morning I want to speak to you beyond the attendance. I don't want to address your attendance. I don't want to address your good works. I don't want to address the, the things that we do common, you know, daily and, and that are good things. I want to go beyond that this morning. This morning we're talking about the desire that we have for our Lord. That is a, that's like the desire of a bride for the bridegroom. That's what we have to compare ourselves to this morning. And we have to admit, beloved, that it's a very, very challenging comparison. Amen? Amen. What is it, beloved? What are these three truths that demonstrate that sincere longing, that, that passionate waiting the consummation of our meeting with the Lord in eternity. What is it? Well, there's three things that I want to bring to our attention this morning. And the first one is profession. Profession. As I already mentioned, that this is a picture of the visible church. The visible church is a church by profession. All who are members of the church are those who profess God as their God, Christ as their Savior, that God's word has rendered the standard by which they have confessed and repented of their sins. Think about the picture of the newlyweds longing for one another. Never higher, never stronger than at that moment. Think about the words that they speak, how they talk to one another, how they reflect upon one another, how they describe one another to their bridesmaids, to the people around them. They speak highly, they speak passionately, and they speak lovingly of one another. And that's what a profession of faith is. It's, it's not just the announcement that I have made a new course of life my own. It's that he is mine and I am his and I'm in love with him and I desire him more than any other. And there's nothing else that can satisfy me but him. We see this in the Psalm of David, Psalm 84 and verse 2, Oh, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Why? Because he is my God and I'm his child. Psalm 96 and verse 8, Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Ascribe to the Lord. What are you doing? What are you ascribing the Lord with? Your mouth. You're speaking of his glory, his person, his works, his goodness. 
You think about the Song of Solomon. I hope the Song of Solomon's come to your mind because now you know why the book's there. Because this is where Jesus could be extracting all of this from and said, this is the picture that I gave you in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. This is the picture of the relationship between God and his people. And he says in chapter 5, verse 16, it says, his mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is the one. And there is no other. There is no other. We think about the times we've slipped into idolatry. We've slipped into sin. We've, we've slipped into some type of lethargy and laziness. And almost our stomachs and our hearts just ball up inside of us. We think... I mean, obviously, we were wondering, how could I do such a thing? But ultimately, it translates into, how could I treat my beloved so? One who deserves so much more than what I have given over these last months. Profession of faith, beloved, when we come to this, this idea of profession, what I want to impress upon you this morning as you said, well, Jess, Pastor Jess, can't the, the, the foolish virgins, well, don't they profess to? Yes. But the difference is this, that the true child of God is constantly conforming the inner man to their profession of faith. Constantly recognizing that our profession is more stellar and glorious than what's going on inside of us. And so therefore we pray daily that our lives would conform to this confession, to this profession. What we have declared, what we have made public about our God, that we would daily conform to it. That we would daily die to those places in our lives that would keep us from walking consistently with it. Oh, Lord, purge me from these things that bring any slight against you. In Titus chapter 1 verse 16, Paul addresses to Titus those who profess to know God, but they don't live up to it. He says this, he says in verse 16, he says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. That's what I'm talking about. Just the opposite though, in the positive, that we would profess to know God in what? By our deeds, we would be, we would be bringing into conformity our inner man to that outward declaration that we would see that both need to be compatible with one another. I mean, anyone can make a good statement, right? It's not hard to make a profession of faith. Remember the parable of the soul. There are those that make a profession of faith and in due time for various reasons fall away from that profession. 
but those ones who continue to conform to that profession of faith continue to bring themselves under the reality and the truth of it. No, recognizing their weaknesses, recognizing their failures, recognizing huge imperfections, nevertheless conforming by God's Spirit into these things and making them the earnestly desiring to be what we're declaring ourselves to be, not to be hypocrites and not to be liars, but those who have God as their God. Conforming and bearing fruit. This idea of confession, or I'm sorry, profession has always been throughout the church. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed, it's the same Greek word there in Titus, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now what did these Old Testament saints do? Throughout their journey, they confessed what? that God is their God and that they will possess all that he has promised them by his promises and spirit and power. Well, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't matter. I have his promise. Well, you look like a fool. I don't care. I have his promise. The Bible tells us that the world sees the things of God as foolish. But those who are being saved, right? Those who are being saved don't see it that way, right? We see these promises as the very food of eternal life and we eat it. And we eat it just like our natural food daily to give us strength and the power to move from here to there and to do all the things we need to do. So we eat the promises of God found in his word so that we would have that hope and faith to continue to glory because we must continue to that everlasting glory. That is our hope. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, he's not just speaking of those raw words, is he? We're talking about that confession, that outward profession, that declaration, that thing that's made public about us and about God, and that we would what? Not be hypocrites, but that we would conform to it. Jesus said, that's the one I too will confess before my father, because that is my son, and that is my daughter right there. Not those who draw near with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Philippians 2, Paul says, and with every, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but, but ours will be the reality of it. Not everybody that confesses Lord on that day of judgment is going to receive heaven, but there will be those that confess Jesus as Lord that will receive that reward of heaven. Why? Because they were the ones who were genuine Listen, I, 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 want to, I want to do away with this. I, I, I know imperfect. I know. 
But the desire for our Savior is so strong. Our love for him is so deep and so broad and so wide that we will profess his name. We will speak of his glory. We will sing of his praises. We will tell the world who is in the alone living and true God. We will declare these things. We, we, we read a hymn. This uh, read a hymn. We sung a hymn from Psalm 23 this morning. A psalm that just completely highlights the care and love our God has for us, how he has set before us this glorious feast and anoints our head with oil, being the chief guest at the table. What a picture of another feast, right? In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Notice this earthly and heavenly confession taking place. What we profess on earth what we are praying that by God's power would conform us to the reality of that profession. Oh, Lord, let us not be found wanting, lacking. Let us be found true and faithful. Even David in Psalm 51, after his restoration, At the end of the psalm, he says, Oh, Lord, I will teach sinners your ways. The point I bring out there is that what is David doing? He's, well, he's professing. What is he professing? The goodness, the grace of God. The restorer, the healer, the one who's the forgiver. I'm going to teach sinners thy ways, Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, we are not just simply bare professors of Christ, are we? We are to profess the totality of the reality of his world, of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his judgments, all that he is. And we ought to be busy doing that with one another and to the world that we live in. Praying along the way that not only, oh, Lord, conform me to my declaration, but, Lord, conform my brothers and my sisters to the same declaration. Bind us to these things, Lord. Hold on to us. Secure us in these matters that we would, pos that we would be the reality of what we are speaking. Brothers and sisters, this is... But there's an, the, the other, uh, again, there's the idea of profession. Now let's look at this, the second one of preparedness. Preparedness. I mean, I could go through scriptures and, and, and just highlight, right, these professions, these, 
declarations that God's people have made throughout time in history, in good times and in hard times, there's still professions being made. We see that all throughout Scripture. That's part of the role of the visible church is to constantly be making profession of faith. And it doesn't, just ma- it doesn't just matter when you join the church. It matters throughout all of your Christian experience that I will continue to be professing the true and living God as my God. He is my beloved. Is it true, beloved, that because we don't speak these things enough that maybe our hearts are not full with that desire? since the mouth speaks out of the fullness of the heart. When we speak these things and then we pray ourselves into this conformity, oh Lord, let this be constantly and consistently true of myself, of my wife, my husband, my children, my friends, my church friends. And we see this desire, beloved, of preparedness. Now, when we talk about preparedness, you see, you see in the parable itself that they, they, they all prepared something. It said, and the foolish, there were five foolish and five prudent, and the foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now, the idea here is that they all in the beginning possessed light. They possessed burning lamps. The difference is that the prudent bridemaids brought extra oil with them to keep the light burning if the bridegroom tarried in coming to the bride feast and to the bride chamber. See, the bridesmaids would have been waiting for the uh, announcement of the bridegroom and when they heard the announcement they would leave the bridal chamber and they would go out to meet the bridegroom and his party and they would come singing and and, and just having a, a just celebration ushering the bridegroom into the presence of the bride they would participate in that so the lights possessed not only a way for them to get around in the dark, but it possessed this festive celebration atmosphere. It was fun. It was a celebration. When we talk about this preparedness, beloved, it's not a foreign concept to us. We prepare ourselves for work, right? We prepare ourselves for a career. That may mean being uh, someone's protege for a time. It may mean going to college. It may mean working a, uh, for a, a string of companies in order to build up your resume and your knowledge and understanding so that you can get the job you want. There's preparation. We prepare ourselves for church membership. How so? The elders meet and we talk about your testimony, your salvation, whether or not you understand the basics of the gospel and whatnot. We prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's Supper. 
we prepare ourselves for marriage. Hopefully. We prepare ourselves for the one that we love. We prepare ourselves for children. We prepare ourselves to be fathers and mothers sometimes, and sometimes they come unexpectedly. But we're always preparing ourselves, and that is the same reality when it comes to the Christian experience. We all, what are we preparing ourselves for? To meet our beloved. We are preparing ourselves right now for that, for that connection, for that time when our beloved is, when it's Harold, he is near, that we can go out and meet him with joy and thanksgiving. We don't want to be like Adam and Eve when they heard the voice and the sound of God walking in the garden. What did they do? They hid themselves because of their sin. And beloved, we should spend our Christian experience preparing ourselves for the day that the Lord cometh. And and that's an overarching truth that overshadows everything. I say, well, I want to be a good husband because my wife deserves it. Well, amen. But you want to be a good husband because the Lord cometh. The Lord cometh. Well, I want to be a good minister because I want, to, I want the congregation to like me. I want them to benefit from the ministry. I'm getting fine and grandy. But the Lord cometh. And he's going to take into account all the ministers. Well, I want to be a church member because it's just the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But the Lord cometh. You prepare yourselves, beloved, in whatever condition, whatever state, whatever age you are in, because some of us can meet the Lord tonight. The Lord cometh. Will I be ready? Will I be prepared for that meeting? Now, that preparedness brings us to that third point of prudence that's connected. Because prudence, beloved, has to address action. Prudence, cautious circumspect. It's an action. When we do something that is that conforms to the dictates of wisdom, we can be called prudent. But it's not passive, it's active. Notice what happened to these foolish virgins when the bridegroom was announced. Well, first of all, they didn't take oil with them. They weren't prepared for a long wait. They weren't prepared for it. They they had prepared themselves nominally, nominally. They weren't prepared if case in God's providence, the bridegroom tarried. And so when it was announced late, they lacked 
the sufficient amount of oil to go out and celebrate the coming in of the bridegroom. And what they did was they asked the other virgins, bridesmaid, if they would give them some of their oil. And what did the prudent bridesmaids say to them? No. No. Because they understood that if they had given them their oil, they would not have enough to go out and meet the bridegroom. And what's the overarching teaching of the parable? To be prepared to meet with the bridegroom. Nothing gets in the way. Nothing gets in the way. Beloved, we must learn to be a prudent church and we must say no to some things. We must say no to those things that would keep us from meeting the bridegroom with great celebration. I'm sure it wasn't easy to say no. But they had to say no because they knew that if they had said yes, they would miss the bridegroom as well. And nothing can stand in the way of you and I, our preparedness, our joy that we are going to meet with our bridegroom. Nothing. It says that those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And thus, and, and those who were ready went in and with him to the wedding feast. And notice, the door was shut. There's a finality to this. What Jesus is saying is that there, there's, there, there is a finality to all of this. That, that highlights the, the profession of faith, conforming to it. That highlights the preparedness, right? There, the door is going to shut. And it's over. We see here that the, the very sad picture of those virgins showing up too late and calling out, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered and said to them, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Matthew has repeated this several times throughout his gospel. I, I don't know you. Why? Because your profession wasn't real. You never conformed to it. You never owned it inwardly. Yes, you did good things. You preached the gospel. You witnessed to people. Yes, you did all these things but I don't know you because you didn't set out to conform yourself to these things that you professed. You didn't set out in preparation to get ready for this day. You were lazy. You were lethargic. You just thought you had all the time in the world. You really did not possess me with passionate love. 
It was all selfish. And the Lord says, I don't know you. I know the ones who love me because I love them. I love those who love me. That's the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I love those who love me. Let me bring some application to this because I want to address the application, I think, in, in three ways. Uh, as a final words of encouragement, beloved. Whether age, let, let, let me address the age groups. We have a wide range of age which means we have a wide range of opportunities, experience, and resources. But what's the one connection we can all have to one another where there's the young here that are limited by the transportation, limited by the opportunities. They're limited because they're confined mainly to the house into whatever their parents allow them to do. But does that mean they can't have a heart yearning and longing and loving the Lord and waiting for his coming? No, they can. We have the aged who have come to the end that made all kinds of physical infirmities that keep them from doing the things they used to do. But what is it? What's the reality of their hearts? The longing of the Lord God, their bridegroom. That's why I wanted us to go beyond just the good works. Because now the young who are confined to certain spaces can what? Pray. And encourage. What can our older saints do? Pray and encourage. And continue to possess a heart that's full of passion and love for the bridegroom. And there's all the in-between. No, it doesn't matter. You can say, well, my opportunities are limited. I don't have a lot of resources. I don't have much. But does your heart long for Christ? Hmm? You don't have to be wealthy to serve the Lord. And you don't have to be poor to serve the Lord. Material possessions can hinder that passion, but it's not related to that passion. You can have great wealth and have a heart like Abraham and even Moses what longing for the courts of the Lord in this life and the next. Even in the circumstances, the, the good times and the hard times, right? Notice both require some type of declaration, profession. And sometimes these Hard mercies, these physical afflictions can wear on us. But brothers and sisters, as we continue, the Lord ministers to our inner person. And there is something even brighter than the sun in a weak saint. It's the, it's the sound of truth on their lips. I've never been more encouraged than when I have been in the presence of a dying saint 
who had done nothing but speak to the glory of Christ, their Savior. And they didn't leave this world with this mentality, feel sorry for me. They left this world feeling sorry for us because they now go to their reward. And we have to continue the battle and the struggle in the visible church, conforming to our profession of faith maintaining that preparedness and and working out that preparedness and and being prudent in the decisions we make, making sure that nothing, we allow nothing to get in the way of our preparedness and uh, our profession. I want to ask you this morning that question, beloved. Are you on the alert for the coming of the Lord? For you nor I know the hour in which he cometh. You don't know. Will you be ready? Consider those three things. Examine yourself with those three things, beloved. Seek his face. Renew, hey, listen, renew your marriage vows today. As you get ready to take this supper, renew that love and passion for your Savior, just like a bride and bridegroom have for one another at that moment of their marriage ceremony. Let's pray. Our Father, we are delighted that we can see the picture of our relationship with you in this marriage feast, in this supper, in this, this, this marriage consummation Lord, and how these these five prudent virgins speak to us, and Lord, how we learn from these foolish virgins, Lord, that we would not be foolish, but that we would be prudent, and that we would be prepared and ready for our coming husband, our bridegroom, O Lord, that we would we would conform our lives, prepare our hearts, that we would Lord, in all that we do, our worship, all that we give ourselves to would be for the preparation of that meeting of our Lord and Savior, that we would come joyfully singing great festive songs of the great Hosanna. Oh, Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.